This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the AJ Bell and Shares Magazine Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and on this week's show, I'll be looking at the latest impact of the war between Russia and Ukraine on global stock markets and how it might impact households in the UK. Joining me this week is Laura Souter. Hi there. And as part of our latest look at the events in Ukraine and how that relates to investments, Dan's going to chat about some of the companies on the UK market that you might not realise have exposure to Russia. This week, we've also got Danny Houston talking to Neil Shah from Edison Research about companies that have been severing ties with Russia. Now, we're going to explore the metaverse later in the show as I chat to Zered Osmani about this buzzword and how he's playing the theme by the Martin Curry Global Portfolio Trust. And I'll also be chatting about post office accounts and how to beat forthcoming changes to dividend tax. But now let's start the show with the big story of the week, Dan. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of inflation pressures are getting even worse. Uh, you know, UK inflation in January was 5.5%. Uh, and then when those figures came out in mid-February, there was a forecast for inflation in this country to hit nearly 8% in April. Now, since then, we've had the invasion of Ukraine, and that's fueled inflation, pushing up commodity prices in particular. Uh, and, that, and that will sort of make the cost of living significantly higher than we thought a month ago. Oil prices have jumped by about 37% since Russia launched its full-scale invasion on the 24th of February. Food prices are shooting up because Russia and Ukraine account for 30% of global wheat supply. And the market's now worried about supply disruptions. Metal prices are also soaring because things like nickel and palladium are among Russia's big exports. So all of this together raises the risks of reduced corporate profit margins, which in turn means the potential for a reduction in business investment. Now, that's bad for the economy. And so is the soaring cost of living as consumers are likely to curb their spending. So when you actually look at the stock market reaction since the invasion began, there is logic to widespread share price declines. Now, the key risk here is stagflation, where you would have soaring inflation and slow economic growth. The big question is whether central banks will decide to aggressively tighten monetary policy and push up rates fast. That could effectively crush economic expansion and by extension also crush inflation. But for now, I think you need to expect a shock when you next fill up with petrol. You might buy some pasta or buy your electronic devices because those prices are almost certainly going to go up by quite a large amount. And now if we look at stock markets particularly, um, I know they initially wobbled when the invasion started, but how have they performed in recent days? It's still pretty rocky out there. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this podcast on Wednesday, the 9th of March. And this morning, European markets were rebounding hard, including a 1.8% rise in the FTSE 100 and a 4% rise in Germany's DAX index. But markets in general around the world are still lower than when the invasion of Ukraine first began on 24th of February. So if you go back to the start of the invasion, stocks like Defence Group BAE Systems, Cyber Security Group Dark Trace, and oil and gas firm Harbour Energy. Now, they've been among the top performers on the FTSE 350 index on the UK market. 
defensive names like United Utilities and Seven Trent, they've been resilient as one might expect, delivering sort of small share price gains since the start of the invasion. And the worst performers have been the Russian companies, including Polymetal, which is down 87%. But if we sort of just look at the past week, there are some other names that are not quite linked to uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine. ITV is one of the worst performers, down 26% after the market hated its plans to spend loads more money on creating content for this new streaming platform called ITVX. A lot of these Russian names are bouncing back, including a 49% rise in Evraz. But if you actually go back to the start of the crisis, those shares in Evraz are still were 64% less than they were the, uh, just before this invasion began. Um, you know, and, and just generally, you know, London Stock Exchange has done well, it's up 14% on some good results. And then finally, we've got a company which perhaps is not well known, certainly not household names, called Coats. That's up 11% on the week. Now, this business makes threads and zips that are used in jeans and trainers. And it's rebounded because sales have been recovered really fast since uh, earlier sort of COVID-related disruption. So the S in ESG has become more important than ever, and company after company is severing ties with Russia. So Danny Hewson has been talking to Neil Shah, who's Director of Research at the leading global investment research firm Edison Group, about how ethical investing has changed the way that brands respond to events like the invasion of Ukraine. Neil, you focus an awful lot on ESG investments. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen that decision-making, those conversations very much come right to the forefront of investors' minds, consumers' minds, companies' minds. Have you been surprised by how companies have responded to what's going on in Ukraine? I mean, you're seeing a spectrum of responses, um, and no, I haven't. I mean, I think um, it was it's encouraging to see that um, you know a lot of companies responded pretty quickly uh, to uh, severing ties or cutting back on their operations with Russia in response um, to the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, what I think is interesting is that. Um, you know, it's matching up the rhetoric of ESG with action now. So you would have, you know, the visible action from the likes of, you know, Netflix and people like that. Yet, uh, you know, there's plenty of people asking the question as to when does McDonald's actually do something about it? There is a huge amount of pressure and it comes on social media. It comes on LinkedIn. Where is the where's most of that pressure coming from is it from investors is it from the consumer or is it from employees i mean i, th I think it's a mixture of things um i mean you, you know you do have a generation of consumers who are much more socially aware much you know care about these issues and i think in terms of brand and reputation this is important um I think it's coming from, you know, directives coming from governments themselves. Um, so, I, you know, it was interesting reading uh, some of the articles around BP's divestments uh, in Russia. And it sounds like that that was prompted by, you know, conversation at sort of governmental level. Um, 
I think uh, some of it is that, you know, you've got management teams who, are, you know, have a very clear and focused sort of uh, moral compass around this as well. So some of it is just coming from, you know, people wanting to do the right things and responding quickly to it. So I, I think I think it's a mixture of things. And it's, you know, it's it, the situation is evolving pretty quickly. And it's also getting the ESG community to reevaluate some of their positioning um, on, on the whole subject. So, you know, you are actually seeing, you know, ESG investors rethinking, you know, should they be excluding defense companies when actually these defense companies are helping, you know, countries um, avoid the risk of, of uh, invasion. So, you know, there's, there's quite a fluid sort of conversation going on right now. Yeah, that particularly has been absolutely fascinating. Is it now ethically sound to invest in companies which make arms, where in the past that would have been for many people an absolute no? If we'd been in this position 10, 15 years ago, do you think we'd have seen the same responses from companies that we have? Because we've seen some really swift action. Yeah, I think um, my my gut. I think no is the starting point. I think the speed of action is propelled because you know we are in a more connected world. Um, social media plays a huge part uh, in this, um, and uh, you know I think that the, the you know the growing focus uh, of consumers on companies doing the right things has led to you know the swift swift action i mean there's there is a genuine brand and reputation risk uh, for companies if they don't take action and you know i think esg investing you know has it, you look at it in terms of risk mit- mitigation it is 10 you know the, the 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 proxy to this is that you know 10 years ago if you'd had a situation where the CEO took away, you know, very large pay packet, and you know, it made its way into the headlines. The stock might have taken an impact for a week or two, but then you'd see it sort of, you know, retrace its ground. Now, you know, the academic work tends to show that if you're not doing the right things from from a governance perspective, if you're not doing the right things from the E and the, G, the S perspective, there's a permanent ratings. Um, downgrade that takes place. So I think companies are attuned to the fact that we're working in a different environment and that um, from a reputational perspective, these things uh, you know, are significant. Because people do go back, as you say, and, and take stock. So if a company makes a promise and they don't follow through, or if, for example, I've heard the t- term war washing used to describe the way that some companies are behaving, perhaps suspending their involvement with Russia rather than severing ties because perhaps in the future there will be an opportunity to go back into Russia. Do you think investors and consumers and future employees will look back at this time, will treat companies differently depending on how they've behaved? I think so. I think, uh, you know, these kind of moments, um, you, you know, mark a company's card in terms of is it following through with its rhetoric and can it be trusted effectively with its rhetoric around ESG? 
and and ultimately doing the right thing. I mean, I think this is a much bigger issue in terms of, you know, um, are companies doing the right things um, uh, based, based, based on what, you know, the consumers of their product are expecting? We are in a situation now where companies doing the right thing from an ESG perspective might have the effect of just adding to the pain of surging commodity prices. It's a very difficult balancing act for some companies. And we've had Shell over the weekend saying that they were having to source oil and gas from Russia because they had customers that they needed to serve and you know they couldn't leave them without. And the other option, of course, was just to pay a ridiculous price. So it's, it's, you know, Russia, in terms of its importance with its, the, the world, you know, it's a very big supplier of a range of commodities and energy being a, a, a big one. Um, it's notable that the US, for instance, had not stopped um, importing Russian oil uh, when the, the, the invasion started. And a number of other companies haven't stopped, haven't, you know, the gas keeps flowing from Russia as we speak. Why is that? Well, I think that there is a, a, a real understanding that it will lead to a significant spike in um, commodity prices if you create a shortage. Um, that has a very real implication uh, for everyday consumers. And in some cases, um, you know that there isn't a, a substitute. I mean, gas is a huge issue for Europe. For Europe, that if you, you know, we just don't have enough natural gas to uh, to um, supply demand right now uh, without without the Russian gas. So, I think that you know that's something which needs to be thought through very carefully. And I think that there's an acceptance right now that that they will continue consuming uh, Russian energy to to protect their populations and, and consumers from. You know, very. I would say very costly and and a negative downstream effects if they if it's cut off. Just a, a final one on ESG. We have a, a, a very clean cut um, situation at the moment where a lot of companies are saying we're not doing business with Russia, but there are now a lot of discussions about doing more business with Saudi Arabia, doing more business with Venezuela, obviously more business with Iran in terms of oil. How do investors weigh this up? How do investors decide who to do business with and who not to do business with? I think if you, if you, if you look at the... Um situation that's occurred um you know i mean if you're if you're thinking about so let's let's take how this should be driven in the the longer term i mean the first thing that's happening on the back of this is that national energy security is going to be brought to the forefront and it will take time but you know a lot of focus will be on creating sustainable solutions uh, and revisiting energy policy so there is less dependence uh, on 
oil and gas from other countries. And, the, you know, I think the big beneficiaries of these is, is clearly going to be the renewable sector. Um, in the short term, it, it, you know, there's this very real sort of consequence of we need to source uh, fossil fuels to, you know, let our lives continue. I mean, it, you, you know, I'm, I, I'm not painting this as a likely situation, but, you know, how would you feel if you went to cook and you turned on your gas uh, and there's no gas there? Um, that's, I think, is is the reality of it, which is that, you know, you need to f ensure that there is a secure and steady supply of energy because we're so dependent on it for everything, uh, you know, for heating our homes, for transporting our goods and services. It's what makes the wheels turn. So it's not something that, that can be taken lightly. There are going to be some difficult choices then in terms of which regimes that you choose to engage with. But I think a good way of, of um, thinking about that is thinking through um, uh, sourcing your energies from you know countries which have a better human rights record, um, who, who are uh, you know undertaking uh, action to make what they're doing more sustainable. So uh, it, uh, there, there will be difficult choices. It's 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 a it's a very real world problem. Um, you have to balance that out between you know allowing your um, population to continue living uh, life the way they want to live, and uh, trying to source your energy from you know the best possible sources from 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 a sustainable perspective. So we'll hear more from Neil in a couple of weeks when he's talking about London's place as a global financial hub. But for now, Dan, you've been looking at how companies have been cutting ties with Russia, including some which still appear to be doing business there. Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, companies that do primary business in Russia have already suffered really big share price declines. You know, investors have been racing to to dump them as soon as this invasion started. Now, we've had... Many big businesses say they'll hot operations or limit services like Apple, Nike and Google. So BP and Shell said they would sell big investments in Russia. But there are still quite a few companies on the UK stock market which have exposure to Russia. And, and I think that what's, what's going to happen is that investors are going to be watching the next set of trading updates and financial results to see what they say about this country. Are they still doing business there? And if if they are or if they're not, how that might impact any uh, their earnings sort of in the near term. Now, when I was doing some prep for this podcast, Mothercare was at the top of my list, and ironically, it's just issued a statement on its position. So um, it's paused operations in Russia and said they account for around a fifth to a quarter of its global retail sales. Now, for every month that it is not operating. In Russia, it's going to lose half a million pounds in profit. So this is a really significant. That's big, then. Yeah, really significant to its business. Um, emerging markets focused fund manager Ashmore. Now, it's estimated to have about eight percent of its assets under management exposed to Russia and Ukraine at the start of the year. Now, its share price is down seventeen percent. So, since the invasion began, so that's that. The market's clearly worried that it's going to see outflows from clients or that some of its holdings will see their value marked down considerably. So when it next reports, I imagine, um, you know, it is going to find, you know, find it quite hard to explain to um, investors saying, you know, that the performance 
almost certainly will have been disrupted. ASOS, the fashion retailer, now it's it's already come out and said it's going it stop sales in Russia and Ukraine uh, temporarily. Um, these combined accounted for twenty million pounds of group profit last year. Now it's incredibly profitable territory for this business, and um, the investment bank Jefferies has done some calculations and reckon that ASOS could miss out on seven million pounds in profit in a, should these two territories be off limits for sale in the next six months. So I think there's some there's some interesting things here. So the, the trends that we're seeing are more and more Western companies are stopping doing business in Russia. But the key question is, is this a permanent thing or is it a temporary thing? Um, if it's permanent, you know, I would have thought there would be a hit, another hit to earnings from a one-off cost of closing down operations permanently. But I don't know whether we're going to get um, sort of a permanent withdrawal from these countries. So, um, you know, other names to watch in terms of Russian exposure include Iron Brew Maker, AG Bar. Genus has got 10% of its operating profit in Russia and Ukraine. And Intercontinental Hotels has got 28 hotels in Russia and two in Ukraine. So this theme is still playing out and I expect to see um, you know, extreme focus by the market on how uh, you know, pulling out or, or even just continuing operations might hit their earnings. I think it's interesting for investors, isn't it? It's a kind of, um, I guess, a bit of a balancing act or a payoff. I'm sure most investors would agree that it's right to pull out of these markets considering the um, situation. But obviously, there is going to be a cost to doing that. And investors need to be need to be aware of that, don't they? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just it's. I think the, the conversation initially was all about, um, you know, is it morally right to be doing business there? But yes, you're right. It, it will impact their earnings. And of course, that will, if there's a reduction in their earnings, that will hit their share price. So the market still needs to question, you know, has a share price fallen enough to reflect what might happen to their earnings going forward? If not, you could still see some more volatility in the weeks, months going forward. So let's now switch to some personal finance topics. It's less than a month until the end of the tax year. A lot of people will be looking hard at their finances uh, to make the most of sort of tax breaks and allowances before these either expire or they potentially change. So we'll be talking about ISAs on next week's show. But we thought this week, let's take a look at dividend tax. There's going to be some big changes from the start of the new tax year on the 6th of April. Yes. So investors who pay dividend tax will see that dividend tax rate increase. Um, This is in line with the new health and social care levy, which is the increase to national insurance contributions that um, all employed people are going to see. The dividend tax is increasing by the same 1.25 percentage points from the start of the new tax year, so from the 6th of April. So tax rates will now be... 8.75% 8.75% for basic rate taxpayers, 33.75% for higher rate taxpayers, and 39.35% for additional rate payers. Why they don't round these up or down, I don't know, but I think they're just trying to make our lives more confusing. Yes. Um, so anyone getting dividends will still get be able to earn £2,000 from dividends each year tax-free. That's the tax-free allowance. After that, they'll pay those rates of tax that I just mentioned, depending on their income tax band. Um, That increase in the dividend tax 
amounts means that investors and the self-employed, so people who pay themselves through dividends, are going to pay £600 million more in tax. And each person is going to have to pay hundreds of pounds more in tax if they take substantial dividends from their investments. Um, If we look at some of the government figures, they show that 40% of people who have dividend income outside of an ISA will see a tax increase. But higher rate and additional rate taxpayers are going to bear most of that cost. So um, most of that increase will come from 70%, 70, sorry, of that increase will come from higher and additional rate taxpayers. Um, So if I give you a few examples of how much more you'll pay in tax, so an investor who takes £10,000 of dividends each year will pay £100 more in tax. And that's regardless of which income tax bracket you're on, because um, everyone is seeing that same 1.25 percentage point increase in the rate. Um, So someone with £30,000 of dividends a year will pay an extra £350 in tax. And if you're taking £50,000 of dividends a year, which is obviously quite a lot, um, you'll pay an extra £600 a year in tax. But there are ways to beat the tax hike. So essentially, um, your best way of doing it is putting money into your ISA or pension. So if we um, ignore the kind of self-employed people who are paying themselves dividends and focus just on investors at the moment, those people will likely have built up a large wealth outside of an ISA. And that will either be because they had more money to invest in the ISA limit in previous years, um, because obviously the ISA limit is a very generous £20,000 now, but that wasn't always the case. So people would have had more money to put in than the ISA allowance and so save that into a dealing account. Or it's people who've had historic wealth. So um, money that they've inherited, for example, that sat outside an ISA that they never got round to putting into an ISA. For those people, they should shift that money into an ISA and then it will be protected from any dividend tax. So if those people haven't used that ISA allowance this year, they can shelter £40,000 by putting £20,000 in this tax year and then on the first day of the new tax year, putting another £20,000 in to use up their ISA allowance. But I think the crucial thing to think about is if you're only paying dividend tax on those income paying investments. So you want to put the highest income paying investments inside your ISA first, rather than just moving either any old investments or an equal weighting of all of your investments. So you kind of want to list out all of your investments by the one that you get the highest amount of income from each year um, going down and then shift the ones that are paying the highest income into your ISA or pension first and then work your way through that list if you've got lots of assets outside of your ISA. Very wise uh, recommendation there. I to, am very wise. Yeah, you to, should know that by now. <laughs> to look at this, I mean, the, the dividend tax changes were announced a while ago, and I, I, I sort of wouldn't be surprised if quite a lot of people have forgotten about this. Mm. Um, certainly not seen too much written about it recently. So, um, and I think obviously, if you're new to investing as well, quite often be, the, the different types of accounts you're offered when you open up, um, you know, say say with a, an investment platform. It can be a bit confusing. I think you know there's one that some places offer something called a dealing account or investment account, and that naturally sort of sounds like the where you should start putting your money. But yes, yeah, so, so do look at these ISAs first because there are you know, everything inside that. You don't pay any tax on sort of gains on, on the value of your shares when you come to sell, or or even you know these income as well. But just one thing probably worth to to mention, um, Laura, you didn't touch on was the the lifetime ISA where. Obviously, the, the allowance there is a lot less than it is for um, other types of ISAs. So um, just be aware that there's sort of 
that's not twenty thousand pounds for that one. So it's four thousand, isn't it? So yeah, four thousand a year you can put into that, and then you can put the remainder. That four thousand counts towards your overall twenty thousand limit. So you could put four thousand in a lifetime ISA, and then sixteen thousand, so the remainder of your allowance, into a normal ISA. Perfect. Okay, so let's move on to some news about post office accounts. Yes. So this is more of like a, I feel like this is like my public service broadcasting of uh, people need to make sure that if they've got a post office account and they get either tax credits, child benefit or guardians allowance um, into that account, they only have a month until, well, less than a month now, actually, um, until that money will stop going into those accounts. So effectively, these post office accounts are being closed and the government is um, no longer going to pay benefits into them. So there's about seven and a half thousand people who need to switch accounts and tell HMRC about their new account details. Um, otherwise, they're going to be cut off from those benefits and payments. Um, this is a very, I think the, the government first notified people in 2019 that this change was being made. Then not enough people um, shifted to new accounts, so they extended the deadline. But this is, they say, the final deadline on the 5th of April. Um, so anyone who has a post office account needs to either open a new account or provide HMRC of details of any other account that they've got open. And they can set up a bank account, a building society account or a credit union account and have that money paid in. Excellent. Something I did forget to mention just a second ago when we were talking about ISAs. We're doing a special show next week where we want to answer all your questions in the run up to the tax year about ISAs. So if you've got anything at all you want to ask about the world of ISAs, please email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk or you can search for AJ Bell on Twitter or Instagram um, and then drop us a, a question and then we'll get back to you uh, on the on the we'll, we'll take the best questions and we use them on the next week's show. Yeah. So either I'll be answering them or I will go away and find an expert and find the answer from them and come back. So it's a great chance for you to ask any questions that you might have running up to tax year end, answer any queries that you've got. Obviously we can't give personal financial advice but we can give you lots of tips so now it's time for our big interview of the week and it's a topic that lots of listeners are going to be finding fascinating over to you dan i was reading a note by the bank of america which says that by 2025 we will interact with a connected device every 18 seconds and by 2030 we'll spend more time in the metaverse than the real world the metaverse is a word that keeps cropping up and I certainly know that investors are interested in this sort of space. So I'd like to bring on Zerid Osmani, who manages the Martin Curry Global Portfolio Trust, to talk about this topic. So, Zerid, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Dan. Um, so my basic understanding about the metaverse is that it's a virtual world where we might appear as avatars inside the internet. Now, I think there's clearly more to it than that so perhaps could you start off perhaps by giving your definition of what exactly the metaverse is yeah dan it's a uh, probably the most important question to kick off because the metaverse can mean many things to many investors and many users so it's important to define it for us it can go into different areas uh, whether it's a social area the corporate area or the industrial uh, design area. And really the way we would uh, sum it up, it's uh, 
that uh, continuation of uh, the interactions on the internet, which uh, some mention as being from web 1.0 to web 2.0 to now web 3.0, where you move, you move from just uh, information and internet access and email to uh, social platforms to then those social platforms becoming much more immersive. And so moving towards uh, augmented reality and virtual re reality. So that's on the social side, but on the corporate side, it's exactly uh, equivalent. So your collaborative work moving from a 2D dimension, whether it's on Zoom or on Teams to being much more immersive uh, with that feel that you're in the office sitting next to your colleagues to really uh, make that collaborative work that every corporate has to achieve in uh, any team environment uh, become much more productive, much more fruitful and building much stronger relationships with your colleagues. And then lastly, we mentioned the industrial design side. It's really moving towards that augmented reality as you're working towards designing um, any kind of product, uh, industrial products, cars, uh, bridges, any infrastructure uh, and having the rendition of uh, those designs uh, in 3D, in holograms possibly, but being able to really look through those designs um, in that virtual world with uh, what uh, some companies call digital twins, which I'm sure we'll go back to later on. Yeah, I mean, you've got some stakes in, is it Hexagon and Ansys, which are sort of in this area, aren't they? Sort of the idea of a digital representation of a sort of a physical object. Perhaps could you explain uh, exactly what they do um, and perhaps what attracted you to them as an investment? Yeah, that's exactly right. And the equivalent for uh, investors that are looking outside, um, yeah, well, across the globe, you've got indeed ANSYS, you've got Hexagon, but you've got also DASA Systems. So these are companies that offer services to a broad range of sectors, but on the industrial side or the corporate side uh, of things, they're able to uh, offer softwares that are enabling these companies to um, have digital twins of their productive assets. And that permits them both to monitor them better if there's uh, any issues that they have to attend to, uh, but also they can uh, go into designing them in order to optimize them or to reconfigure some of the production lines. They can do that through the digital twins equivalent uh, uh, as an initial step before then uh, applying uh, the final renditions onto the real world. And therefore, uh, and, and then you can also think about, uh, let's say a car design or an engine design in the car. If uh, we were still talking about combustion engines, of course, that's a, uh, uh, yesterday's world, but any sort of industrial design that uh, makes a digital twin of that uh, product uh, make it easier for engineers to collaborate and to uh, tackle some issues they might have in terms of uh, layout, in terms of how they uh, design and how they fit those products together is what is called digital twins. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, efficiencies as a result of corporates using those digital twins as a way to manage their equivalent physical assets on the ground. So the, the idea of sort of 3D simulation is you know, certainly not new. Um, do you, can we really call these 
sort of these activities, sort of the metaverse, or, or um, is that perhaps the metaverse is the, is the sort of the modern day definition that can span lots of areas here? It's probably the latter, uh, Dan, and I think you're right to ask that question. Uh, investors have to not think about the metaverse as something absolutely new, a new theme in itself. It's just a continuation of what was already being put in place, already utilized. So whether you call it augmented reality, virtual reality, digital twins, but having that in a more immersive manner is really the next generation of uh, those type of uh, services. Because I think a lot of people would look at the metaverse as being um, like the, I, you know, I saw something to do with an island for sale the other day, and it turns out you couldn't live there. It only exists online. I think that's what people think about the metaverse, or it might be you're seeing a sort of a famous musician might be performing a concert while you're playing a game inside it. So, it, so it, I was wondering if you, if you given there's this sort of this big, certainly public push for the metaverse, um, for this sort of area, it would, would sort of computer game companies be sort of a good investment you know they've got to create those graphics and all this sort of new content so or, or is that not not really the best place to be sort of parking your money it is i mean these are certainly the areas within the social side of things that uh, will benefit from the metaverse and from having more uh, immersive uh, experiences so whether it's gaming as you mentioned it the social interactions so instead of just being on a platform you actually interact with your friends by meeting in a in a bar you can choose a location um, throughout the world you can decide to meet in, at the top of a mountain um, you can indeed uh, attend virtual concerts and again that can be very rewarding when you do that in a more immersive manner with your uh, friends and family and of course, we should talk about shopping as well, because uh, the online shopping experience that we've been uh, accustomed to, you can then uh, extend that to a more immersive um, approach to shopping, where you have virtual changing rooms, where you can have your avatar trying different type of clothes and different color of clothes so that you can decide which ones you might want to, um, to purchase. And all of it can be much more um, immersive, as I mentioned, and therefore uh, gives you a better rendition of what uh, the clothes might look like on you. So on that side, there's a lot that uh, one can be excited about in terms of actual applications. For us as investors, of course, the reality of what it means in terms of what are the best opportunities is what we will need to uh, discuss at some point. And uh, one of the aspects of uh, a true immersive uh, experience for the consumer, because that's what we're talking about here, is um, is uh, headsets. So uh, you will be having to wear headsets. Those will have to be very powerful. So you did mention uh, uh, some of those uh, aspects. So you would need a very powerful graphics cars, uh, very strong um, computing power. Uh, and therefore, for us, anything to do with the hardware side of things. Um, graphics cards, semiconductors are where we think the opportunities are really attractive to capture uh, that social aspect of uh, the metaverse. Then on the corporate side, the corporate collaborations, um, which is uh, 
similar to the social environment, but in an office environment where you collaborate with your colleagues and appear to be in the same place, this again will require um, much stronger computing power and much uh, uh, more powerful graphics card. So again, similar type of companies, whether it's the likes of NVIDIA or some of the leaders in the semiconductor space or some of the companies that provide the, the, the tools uh, and the machines to produce the, the semiconductors um, are areas that we would want to be uh, exposed to where we are actually exposed across the strategies. And then on the industrial side, the digital twin aspect that we talked about, we've already mentioned some names like NASA systems, Hexagon, uh, ANSYS, all giving you some good exposure to some of these uh, industrial trends. What about um, Facebook has changed its name to Meta Platforms and is clearly trying to sort of lead this sort of shift into or, or develop this world of the the metaverse. But you know, as a as a stock, is that something that you you sort of be interested in, or, or perhaps avoid the most obvious things when you're sort of looking at an investment thing? Yeah, we have uh, been avoiding that name for some time, and we think that uh, the challenge for them will be to. Uh, reignite uh, the gross potential that they've had historically, which uh, we're not clear that they will be able to achieve. So indeed, they have identified this area as an area of potential growth, but they're not the only ones. Microsoft is in there, Apple, Google. Uh, this is on the uh, Western side of the world, but you also have Alibaba, Tencent, ByteDance, Baidu, Huawei uh, in China also in there. And we should uh, also talk about companies like uh, Snapchat or Adobe that can also have a, a very plausible offering in the metaverse. So it's going to be very competitive. And we don't think that the users will want to simply depend on one offering, on one tech giant. And uh, therefore, the potential scale uh, issues will definitely come to bite some of these companies. Uh, and not to mention also the regulatory threats that are ongoing for some of those uh, companies like uh, Facebook. So what do you think is the sort of the market potential for the metaverse here? I mean, could you sort of put some numbers on it? Or That's a really critical question, Dan, and uh, it's very difficult to put a, a figure. So predictions range from doubling of the market towards $800 billion, if you look at some uh, reports from the likes of Bloomberg, uh, we think that number uh, might be grossly underestimated and might just be focused on the consumer side of things. Uh, if you bring in the corporate segment that we talked about, if you bring in the digital twins uh, opportunity on the industrial side, then that figure can easily be multiplied um, many times. So potential large opportunity uh, that investors should be thinking about, um, something that we're still assessing in terms of potential. Uh, we know that uh, uh, Meta, uh, formerly known as Facebook, has mentioned that they would uh, be looking at spending $19 billion uh, towards uh, the Metaverse opportunity, which is a colossal uh, sum of money in itself just coming from one company. So that can tell you the potential size. We know that the VC funding uh, towards um, uh, virtual reality headsets 
is quite sizable. Uh, it's uh, in the range of um, four billion or so uh, of uh, of opportunities being funded in 2021 in the VRAR uh, segment. So again, that gives you a potential marker of what could be the opportunity. But the way we would bring it down to some form of reality when you think about spending on the metaverse is down to the disposable income then. Because ultimately, disposable income is important to take into consideration for the private users of the metaverse. Um, there are some great excitements about how users are going to be spending on their avatars, buying some virtual trainers, virtual handbags. Uh, but ultimately, that has to be paid for. And a disposable income for most households is pretty finite. And therefore, if uh, users decide to spend on their digital avatars, that's going to have to be taken away from their real life spending. So that's uh, the way we would then uh, bring a bit of uh, reality to that opportunity. So the way we would see it is great opportunity for the softwares and the hardwares and the enabler of the metaverse. Um, perhaps uh, uh, more of a reality check for how much users might be spending on the metaverse, because if they're spending on the metaverse, they're going to have to reduce their spending in the real life. And then the interesting aspect of um, where users will be deciding to spend their money is something that I'm sure you'll be uh, covering in some of your latter uh, podcasts. Yeah. And I guess from a consumer's perspective, it's we're talking several years away aren't we before any sort of shift in in how people would spend their money because yeah, i think from the sort of the consumer side of the metaverse it's still very early days isn't it in terms of what's being developed it is although you can see that in the online gaming community some uh, demographics uh, do not hesitate to spend money on their digital skins and uh, uh, various uh, various equipment around that so you can see how uh, the incentivization to spend can be there, but ultimately you go back to the disposable income. What they spend online will be taken away from the spending in, in the real world, if you want to call it that way. So that's all from us this week. Don't miss next week's show where we're going to be talking about ISIS, as we mentioned before. Danny is also going to be chatting to London Metric about how electric vehicles are important to development plans for retail parks. And if you haven't already rated the show, we'd love you to give some feedback by whatever podcast platform you use. Um, and thanks very much for listening. Thanks a lot. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.